welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure, and in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode one, season one, and today I talk to Dr. Edward Burke, Assistant Professor in International Relations at the University of Nottingham. I talked to Edward about his recent book on the British soldier in Northern Ireland, serving in the early 1970s. He spoke to me from his office in the East Midlands. Hi, Ed. Welcome to the Combat Morale podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself and explain how you came, how you became interested in the British soldier in Northern Ireland in the early 1970s? So I'm a, a, an assistant professor in international relations at the University of Nottingham. Um, I previously worked at the uh, University of Portadot as a lecturer in strategic studies at the Royal Air Force College Cranwell. <laughs> um, this book, the book, the book on Army of Tribes, is based largely on my time as a PhD student at the University of St Andrews. Um, um, where my PhD supervisor, Professor Richard English, um, and I came to it oddly enough because of my previous career. Um, I had uh, worked as an analyst um, as part of the EU police mission in Afghanistan, and as a consequence, had spent a lot of time with uh, with the uh, ISAF, the NATO-led ISAF mission in Afghanistan, in terms of um, trying to uh, ensure that uh, the Afghan police. Uh, were adequately partnered in the field uh, in terms of mentoring, training, etc. by uh, NATO partners. And uh, there, whether it was Helmand or Capisa province, where the French were, or in Herat, where the uh, Italians were, um, I began to note that, it was quite interesting to, to note that the, um, the difference in behaviour in terms of at the operational level between different rotating units um, was quite was quite obvious. Um, so an Italian cavalry unit or uh, parachute, uh, an airborne unit um, had, you know, came very much with its own kind of sense of, of how they did business um, and watching them relate then to the, the same Afghan police officers or Afghan army officers was, was interesting because, you know, some were, were much more um, open to um, a more intelligence-led or conciliatory approach to others were front foot, gung-ho, keen to crack on and sort of engage on the kinetic side of operation. Um, and that could be, you know, everybody was operating under the same strategic construct or concept of operations or plans, a chain of command, and everybody knew that was there was a very much a, a, com- a campaign plan. Um, but yet the divergent behavior at the operational or tactical level was quite striking. And so I thought, you know, is this is this common? Is this, you know, in most counterinsurgencies, do we see that, that sort of small unit culture matters at the operational level to the point that that you know nominal plans at the strategic level can be significantly altered um, and so I I wondered whether in a low intensity conflict like Operation Banner whether that had also been the case and of course unlike Afghanistan I wasn't limited by the lack of availability of restricted uh, documents M- much of the British Army's um, operation uh, documents um, is available most of the indiv- m- m- some of it isn't so 39 Brigade from Belfast, and much of the brigade material is is restricted and not available. Scholars, but there is battalion level much. There's quite a considerable amount of battalion battalion level archive material in the National archives and in Regiment K. And so when when I began to looking for that material, I did find enough of it to realise that you could at least begin to understand at the battalion level um, how uh, so uh, how uh, at the uh, command level what the the plan of operation or the operational uh, posture of the battalion was, what how they prioritised the intelligence they were bringing in, and so because of those. 
documents were available, I would then hope, well, you know, I could do a study on this because, again, most unlike in the case of Afghanistan, enough time had passed 40 years whereby the officers, um, the NCOs and the other ranks were were now retired, clearly, from the military. And so may, may be willing to talk um, about some of their experiences and then you could potentially cross-reference what they were saying with the archival material as well as the uh, the, the large amount of clearly media and material that has always been. So it, it, it really, the, the, the concepts or the proposal for the for this research originated in Afghanistan um, uh, because out of uh, my, my experience there looking at um, this divergent behaviour attack uh, at, at between different units operating to the same plan the same orders the same change of chain of command but with very different postures conduct and end results so I, I wondered could I apply that observation test it and, and see whether it was also true of Operation Banner in Northern Ireland Before we get into the detail could you give us a, a brief overview of what Operation Banner was uh, and what, what the British Army was seeking to do in Northern Ireland in the early 1970s? Well, I think initially Operation Banner was a reluctant aid to the civil power mission um, that, that was put in place uh, in the summer of 96 because the Royal Ulster Constabulary the North Police was essentially overwhelmed with and dealing with uh, civil strife, unrest, violence, intercommunal violence in, and also violence against the police themselves. So it was seen as necessary that, that the uh, the army go in um, as, as in some ways um, an actor that could uh, also bring, you know, was sort of, well, was a UK actor that could bring some, could settle the tensions in Northern Ireland around policing as well, that the RUC were seen to be um, sort of biased um, and had engaged in in the inefficient and excessive use of force uh, in, in dealing with the civil rights campaign over the previous two years. So the army was in some ways sent in as an aid, in, in aid to civil power, yes, to, uh, to the Northern Irish government, but it was also seen as... As, as London's way, because they reported to the Ministry of Defence, it was London's way of, of, of trying to mediate in a, in, a, in a local political dispute and then ultimately bring about push for reform within Belfast that would deal with the uh, significant Catholic national grievance that, that had come to the fore during the rise campaign. So that that was the initial plan. And, and to some extent, that worked in that it did dampen down and they were able to sort of, uh, to, to, to some extent, to limit intercommunal violence. Um, they were able to negotiate with both sides uh, and try and, uh, even in terms of, you know, tolerating some no-go area in the early years on both sides, uh, but particularly on the, perhaps on the national side. And and that type of uh, sort of armed negotiation was quite common from 1960 and 1960 What quickly became apparent, however, was that in the army was keen to deal from 1970 on, was, was keen to get to grips with what they saw as an insurgent or proto-insurgent, if not insurgent threat, uh, from um, both the provisional IRA and the official IRA. And so by 1970-1971, it is clear that at a very senior level um, in the British Army, that they are, they are planning ultimately for a um, deal with, to, to try and defeat the IRA. Um, and so, you know, that's that really becomes then the operational posture from certainly 1971 on so that they sort of need to commit enough forces. Um, the political conditions have to be right. So initially, you know, things like uh, internment without trial, um, but also that there needs to be sort of a number of political measures put in place that will allow the army to to to, to take enough IRA volunteers off the streets um, and to deal with the fact that, you know, from the British Army's perspective, courts are not uh, sufficient at the outset of Operation Banner. And so, you know, new power is would be needed. Um, and so once that was in place, it was seen then that they could sort of, they could ratchet up pain against the IRA and ultimately defeat the IRA um, within a number of years. So that becomes then the very much the, the, the posture and the aim uh, in the early 1970s. Um, clearly also uh, other events such as, you know, Bloody Sunday in term itself, seen it very controversial, um, does kind of add fuel, grievance, uh, passion, passions within Northern Ireland, which leads to increased recruitment to the IRA. 
Um, and of course, the intercommunal um, tensions do not are, are not you know dealt with. Still, reform is incremental. It's getting there, um, but there is now quite a radicalized, particularly a younger generation within the nationalist community. But on the loyal on the on the, on the unionist side too, enough of the enough of the population is radicalized to try and um, you know push the through to violent means try and force the, the British state and the British government to give more concessions more quickly, um, or perhaps even move towards. So, with the British Army in this context, how would you characterize their behaviour um, from the battalions that you? existed and did their conduct largely support or hinder the wider political military objectives of their presence in the province? I think by and large that you know if we're looking at again a an army that is made up largely of kind of late adolescent you know men in in, in sort of their late teens or early twenties. Um <clears throat> I think the army actually does largely do what it's set out to do, particularly in the early years of Operation Banner. Um, they t- do take the sting out of intercommunal rioting. Um, they do negotiate uh, successfully areas, particularly in Belfast, Derry, Londonderry. Um, and so, you know, there is there is clearly a certain amount of success there in in, in, in dampening down that in a very tense situation during that period. Um, I, and I think the, the problem is what to do next. And and obviously, clearly, there is going to be significant resistance within the Ulster Unionist uh, Party, within the Northern Irish government to sort of rapid reform. Uh, there is clearly a, a sort of enormous fear within uh, among unionists uh, in Northern Ireland that um, you know large concessions will lead to ultimately quickly lead to a, a collapse in in, uh, in in law and order uh, in Northern Ireland. That this will somehow you know give give more oxygen to a push for United Ireland. So uh, uh, you know the reform will never be enough for the nationalist agenda, etc. And so there's a deep set fear there about about giving these type of concessions. And clearly the, the governments uh, of, of Prime Minister Ted Heath, uh, but also the Labour government before that, are are tentative and to some extent, um, you know, see reforms as, as, as being carried out over a number of years. Um, the army is trying to sort of maintain order uh, while uh, these reforms, uh, whether it's, you know, local government uh, or in terms of, you know, potential power sharing, power sharing arrangements in the future, um, while these reforms are sort of you know, tr- instrumentalised by London. Um, the problem is, of course, is that, that this, the, you know, the, uh, the agency shown by other actors, particularly those in the Republican movement, uh, but also loyalists, uh, to try and sort of counter, try and again force the British government's hands, mean that the, uh, the these these plans are sort of they they, they are they are uh, they are hindered or they are obstructed by events on the streets and the ground. And the army are another political actor on the ground. And and the way that the army behaves is that uh, you know certainly some units, particularly in the early years, um, some units are very happy to negotiate with uh, with citizens' defence groups or loyalist groups, and they're happy to try and um, and sort of even allow for this kind of negotiated uh, presence of the British Army, but but clearly that that is seen as a you know as that drags on and as the months to year into 1970, and there's there's less of an appetite for that within the British. There's a sense that this is a British city, Queen's Rift should run in Belfast, um, and that you cannot have this constant negotiation, particularly with Republicans, um, and and ultimately the only way to to deal with the situation will be to take back territory. And I think there is significant divergence, you know that that that, that is that is reflected at the top of the organization um, but there is a certain amount of caution in terms of uh, you know how to do how to, how to sort of win back or how to end this kind of militia type um, occupation parts of, of, of the UK and and one of the ways they, they seek to do that is 
is is to um, try and take out you know key leaders from the Republican movement, particularly. And so there is a there is a, a predominant focus on sort of taking out um, Republican leaders, particularly in 1971. And once they're taken out of the agenda, these troublemakers, these people who've also been active in, in the 1950s or 60s, that you know things will fall into place. Um, what what mitigates against to some extent the um, this you know selective approach of, of the British Army in the early years of, of Operation Banner in 1971 is is of course that the um, going into an area like the Falls Road is extremely difficult. You know to just simply sort of arrest several people, uh, clearly breaking down barriers. <clears throat> that and the army is not necessarily uh, you know this this is not uh, because of the opposition they face in terms of street violence, rioting. Um, soldiers are are have some training in this, um, but you know nonetheless escalation against them is sort of similarly met with escalation return. And um, there is the obvious risk that predominantly 18, 19 year old, 20 year old soldiers can and did um, use excessive violence in certain instances. So, you know, touristy, the Falls Road curfew in 70. Um, and, and there's also a, a divergence in behaviour between different battalions. Uh, so we, when we look at artillery units, for example, they tend to be more sort of happy to negotiate with sort of local committees and they're less aggressive. Uh, they don't have this kind of sense of combat elitism uh, that perhaps is given the kind of the, the function of the professional the cultural identity and fresh function of the um, of the infantry. What we see is infantry units kind of find this much less tolerant. They should be negotiating, for example, entry into an area, or they should be talking to um, a senior Republican from the official IRA about how to to manage parade or some grievance in the local area of wherever it is in West Belfast, Belfast, for example, Bogside and Derry. And so what you see is is this divergence in behaviour, and and I would say you know a command that is not necessarily sure about what it wants either. So um, you know punish so. So if you have an aggressive approach by, let's say, the Black Watt, Royal Scot, and then you have an artillery unit go in as a roulement, as a as a replacement unit, you know, a few months later, and they sort of behave in a more pacifist, uh, sort of pacific or conciliatory manner, um, you would expect that that you know at the at the brigade level um, that that this is in- inconsistency will be noted and corrected. But we don't really see that, and, and that 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 sort of is also true of 1972 when things are now incredibly violent. Clearly, events have taken a turn, um, and there's been a number of events which have led to serious recruitment for the IRA, for original IRA, um, and the, their campaign has really sort of got off. It is now this this is this has now become an insurgency. Um, you have large scale attacks against the, the British Army um, in uh, in the cities, but also in rural areas. And there's not really a sort of an understanding of how to um, how to deal with divergent behaviour. Or there's not there's certainly not an effort to deal with divergent behaviour, particularly when it is you know there are serious allegations of analysis and abuse, um, sometimes by more elite units, and and the the lack of uh, the lack of action most notoriously when it came to example properly investigating event Bloody Sunday but all other incidents um, that we again we, we do see this divergent behaviour including among including among the infantry and, and it very much depends sometimes who is in command and uh, you know what they believe is the right approach there is significant amount of autonomy at, at, at the local level and I, I I do believe that that really it goes right down to the company that because this is a static type of conflict low intensity um, so there's no sort of you know there's no major uh, objective requiring a battalion level operation normally that there are occasionally but it tends to be the the reality constructor in terms of the type of operation tempo uh, relationship with the local population um, tends to be sort of at the company commander level so the major and local people get that whenever they make a request that you know a riot or a meeting whenever it comes to you know the a, a member of the clergy or, or, or a local um, you know leader of the orange order or the uda or the catholic Servicemen association they tend to ask for the major uh, when it comes to talking to the army and that's because the major has command of that usually quite particularly in an urban environment usually quite small uh, patch and so he he largely sets the um, the operational tempo uh, 
and I would say the environment in which um, soldiers begin to understand what is permissible and not permissible and, and how they should behave. And that is very malleable. It's um, soldiers, you know, particularly in, in these small groups, um, will tend to, if there is a charismatic, if if the company commander, for, for example, is quite charismatic, has combat experience, um, is is generally respected, um, what he says and, and how, you know, the, the type of parameters that he set for his subunit, for his company, is often vitally important. And of course, the role too of the of the NCOs then become fundamental, not least because in, in 1972, when we have, you know, 134 British soldiers killed by, uh, primarily by the IRA, this is, a, and many, many more wounded, clearly, this is now a very, this is now a very dangerous situation for and you know uh, survival is probable but not definite and so um for soldiers to you know they now need to orientate towards uh, you know 19 year old soldier uh, in, in any unit needs to now sort of look to his ncos and his company commander to to get him through and and what they say you know these experienced individuals who may have served in borneo or aden what they say uh, and how they they tell him to behave and you know in terms of maximizing his professional function but also his survival um is is absolutely critical and it's particularly in, in this type of static conflict and that influence I, I found was was you know was cannot be underestimated so we tend to look at the sort of what the generals say and we tend to look at what the politicians say um but really trying to understand you know the type of conflict between the british army and the ira in ardoin for example in 1973 you need to look at the particular unit its culture its norms its experiences um its reality constructors key the you know the company commander the company sergeant major the sergeants uh, who are there because these guys are going to set tone uh, for what what happened so looking at the sort of of role of small unit culture what were the sort of the main drivers that kept kept people functioning in terms of their sort of peer leadership their sort of local officers or ncos um but also in sort of formal norms and unit culture what what do you think generally from the interviews that you conducted were the most sort of important i think in terms of so i think first of all it was the fundamental for uh, for soldiers to in terms of go, going back to the you know that this for 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 a soldier from who is you know quite young so again so 1920 which is sort of around you know the average age Age of many soldiers um, uh, that you know in, in terms of them sort of turning up in a, in a part of the UK that looks familiar you know, you know WH Smith Marks and Spencers you know kind of is part of, clearly part of the UK um, in some ways it's quite familiar and yet they find themselves in this extraordinary situation where people are trying to kill them uh, and quite quite frequently in 1972 particularly um, and so so in terms of you know the, the type of for cohesion that you know what's going to what's going to sort of keep uh, a, a small unit together well it's going to be first of all the, the person they you know, they respect that is nearest their own rank. That's going to be fundamental. So it could just be, you know, a lance corporal with a sort of half section or a section or corporal, or it's somebody who is a bit more experienced, but they see all the time. And and we frequently, you know, certainly in looking at some of the archival material that's there about, you know, sort of, and, and indeed the interviews I conducted, you know, conducted, so I, uh, I conducted um, interviews with uh, 36 um, soldiers, uh, most of whom admittedly were, uh, were non-commissioned officers and many of them junior officers and sort of I tried to conduct you know several interviews with many of them try and um, tease out some issues around the question of cohesion and what you generally do do find about you know among the the, the ordinary soldier the private soldier guardsmen is that they they very much do look to the, the person who is going to keep them alive most fundamentally in the immediate future is going to be that that junior NCOs like and that individual will often have a, just a bit more experience about so in the case of one of one of the uh, 
regiments that I studied was the Argyll and Sullivan Hollanders. So, you know, a guy who may have been in the in the regiment for for five or six years will have been will have come under fire probably in eight or or you know. So, um, that ex- and that and that experience is is very important because certainly when you when you look at how these guys uh, at a very you know the 18, 19 year olds remember how they responded to coming under fire in somewhere like South Armagh in 1972 is that was the bewilderment initially that this is actually happening. And so, you know, the the, the, the first reaction of many was a, a hesitancy. It was that, you know, hang on, do I, 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 I was a minute ago, I was in a very familiar environment in, on these islands in the UK. And now I, I just have to now crack into action to do all that training to sort of whether it's fire maneuver or whatever these, these sort of, you know, automized re- responses or routines that the army tries to teach young soldiers. But but sort of sort of snapping into that wasn't immediate. And it was usually the, the junior NCO who sort of shouted at them or, or sort of took the lead uh, because that little bit more experience of how to stay alive and how to remember your function and your performance uh, was was absolutely vital. And so that doesn't mean that every junior NCO was, you know, performed as expected or as they should. Um, but generally the NCOs were, particularly at this time of where the IRA was taking the field border area or even in West Belfast, that, that the, you know, the sergeants mess would be quite quickly and identi- quite quick in identifying an NCO who wasn't meeting that function and replacing it because they realised that really, you know, as important as they were, in terms of setting the tone of the NCO's mess. The guy in the street, on the brick or on the half section, the guy who was going to keep their men alive and also keep them disciplined in terms of their, their fire discipline uh, was going to be that junior NCO. So so I think again and again, you know, you heard from soldiers that, that the, the nearest in, in the nearest in 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 sort of senior rank to them, i.e. the, the junior the lance corporal or the corporal was really important. Um and and at that point when they were under fire, you know, certainly the, the major seemed very, very and what he told them said what to do with fire didn't seem particularly relevant they were trying to survive and not only survive they were trying to carry out the fest suppressing fire returning the fire and hopefully as occasionally did um killing wound the person firing at so so and and i generally found that that works actually and the, the army you know some ways should have been i think was quite pleased with it because army you know in terms of coming under fire the professional british army in the early 1970s did very well uh, and it helped of course that most of the provisional ira people were amateur now, these guys and some of them were had, had tried to work quite hard and of course there were some in the Divisional IRA who had served in the British Army themselves or were reservists in the Irish. So there was some, you know, there were some serious experienced people, very capable people in the Divisional IRA side. But by and large, the IRA too realised quite quickly that engaging in a firefight with professionals is a bad idea because all professionals done for the previous month trained in usually using extremely good, uh, you know, teachers. And, uh, you know, uh, so so to take actually fielding a force, the IRA by 1973-4 realised is a bad idea. That's not a good idea profession. because the responses from from these from these soldiers who some of them may have joined, you know, six years before is actually pretty good i mean they they they, they're able to remember once they're pushed into and so the leadership junior leadership at the nco level is working um, and they're pleased with that what the army finds more difficult is that they do find and it's interesting to talk to some of the um i did have a chance to speak to some of the people involved with sniper training time cold kills are much more difficult for for young soldiers even some of whom who've um you know practiced on the ranges endlessly when it comes to actually taking life between mark spence and Smith in west belfast that's that's hard um and some of them you know uh one officer went on to be quite a senior officer afterwards you know did say that look you know it was a cultural problem too that um you know the, the irish weren't different to us and some of our guys were irish, particularly in the scottish large recruitment people from irish back certainly number of the ncos the recruitment was bigger in the 60s before the trouble
club was kicked off. A lot of you know people who had emigrated from Donegal or joined Scottish regiments, joined the military, lower socioeconomic uh, part of Scottish society, and, and the military was an appealing career for many of them. And and so you know uh, th- this was, but but this is throughout. This is this is this is throughout the British the British Army. It's not just the Scots who, who suffer from this. It was this sense that you know should we should we be doing this in the UK? And so th- this kind of goes against the perhaps you know some of the inherited you know Republican logic that you know, the British Army sort of was on un- un- hesitating in, in in the use of violence. And actually you know there is quite a lot of evidence both in terms of interviews that I conducted, but also if you look at some of the watchkeepers logs um, where there uh, and some of the reports that are available in the archives where you know the commanding officers are scratching their heads trying to understand why uh, soldiers you know couldn't shoot straight from 20 yards. What went wrong? Uh, and sometimes it's, it's complete he- hesitation. They won't even fire a shot or they'll fire a shot late. You know the guy's gone. And particularly in 1973-74 when you know and and and, and earlier when in urban areas predominantly and particularly the IRA got very good at shooting scoot. You know you don't want a soldier to hesitate. Um, and hesitation was a problem. It was this kind of they would see an armed now this is before an IRA sniper had even sort of fired a shot, but they were clearly coming into position. Another brick, another sort of half section perhaps might come into a position behind that IRA sniper. And then the army after the, 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 the review, the after action report is kind of trying to understand why couldn't, you know, this is a good soldier, he's a good shot, why couldn't he do it? And and that is a curious, perhaps a curious dimension of the of the Northern Irish conflict that its proximity to the UK, this cultural proximity, is seen as a problem. And in terms of you know the need to exercise a professional function sometimes, i.e. taking your life. And and actually some some officers do then sort of think about how the, you know, wow, you know, if we're seen as if there's too much cultural proximity and that may be interfering with professional performance, what do we do about it? Um and so I quest I don't I actually genuinely try to investigate this a little bit, but clearly I do think at a um at the at a it, it becomes easier for some soldiers if they do have to go in and do distasteful things like raiding some a house at four in the morning where you have to you know upset uh, families, children, etc. And, and of course then you know scaling that that at the lower level, but scaling it right up to to taking the life of somebody who and particularly again the British soldier is clearly is is is, is emotional, right? You know emotion like any other human being, they understand they can see poverty. A soldier from Glasgow or Liverpool or or you know Norwich can see what poverty looks like and can sometimes may even come from an impoverished situation themselves and they may even sympathize with you know as many soldiers did they may reject the kind of uh, some of the unionist narratives they hear around nationalists or nationalist areas um you know perhaps which are not always bigoted but perhaps are reject you know some of the more bigoted remarks that they might hear about you know the why nationalists are doing what they're doing and and in rejecting that some of them may even come to as they did you know a number of them uh, certainly the bulk of the people that I interviewed had empathy and understanding and sympathy with the Catholic areas that they were helping to police are the you know so um, now that doesn't mean that they didn't uh, as many as a number of them admitted to didn't engage in sometimes anti-Irish remarks or but one of the reasons they may have done that was that if you were doing dis- distasteful work or some of them believed unsoldierly or so quasi-police work and this was not the British Army on the Rhine um, then you know to make sense of that well how do you make sense of doing distasteful work I mean if there if somebody is almost the same as your sister or your cousin or your neighbour it's very hard to do this but but if you if you sort of you know try and sort of put a little bit of a barrier between us and them then it, it, you can you can get through the day a bit easier and so did some type of demonization of the Irish creep in certainly I think that I think that was a factor I think on reflection 40 years later some of the so you know I think a large you know some soldiers certainly a large number that I interviewed would sort of you know testify to that say I I, I don't think they would you know I think many of them believe strongly believe that they behaved in in a disciplined manner and most of their other soldiers you know they served have behaved in a disciplined manner and they would almost invariably admit to exception um, but they would also sort of say that yeah certainly after they started taking casualties um, uh, 
and and the nature of this distasteful work that meant that yeah resentment crept in um and and you know uh when people were screaming at them in the, in the streets or spitting at them in the street did they sometimes shout back absolutely and did they use hurtful and demonizing language absolutely and that became much more apparent and much more sharper once a unit took um casual. i was just wondering whether you know the sort of the cultural and social environment of the early 1970s did shape the way soldiers conducted themselves i'm mean, thinking about notions of masculinity certainly the racism and prejudice that i think a lot of irish suffered in the early 1970s and also general ignorance about northern ireland you know if you come from norwich all you see about northern ireland is the news and did these sort of prevailing social norms uh, and sort of contraceptions from from soldiers who came from the uk mainland shape the way they interacted with people from both sides of the community i mean absolutely i think we need to go back to looking at you know recruitment uh, for the british army in in the late 1960s and early 1970 um did, did, did the British Army recruit people who had been in trouble with the law? Absolutely, right? So, you know, the joke among some Scottish regiments was that, you know, uh, they learned some some of their, uh, you know, anti-riot tactics in Barlini prison, which is just outside Glasgow, you know? So it's, um, yeah, so, so interesting because they were the rioters, right? So they knew how to be, so so that, 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 that was a joke, to be fair. But but to say that some of these, you know, some of these very young soldiers weren't, didn't have juvenile kind of records or problems or, you know, I think many of them did. And, and the British Army did recruit from, uh, as militaries often do, from lower socioeconomic people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who grew up in violent areas in a, in a violent difficult time I mean you know the early 1970s Brit Scotland and anybody remembers that sort of you know electricity the lights going out you know violent scene violent riots um, uh, racial tension uh, absolutely and and to, so so to expecting this kind of clean slate soldier you know this so, the soldier doesn't sort of you know the person wearing the uniform brings that that social background with and the, the job of the the NCO or the people managing this professional function is of course to to, to try and condemn and, and limit uh, to, to limit that th- those previous experiences into a soldier who behaves, behaves professionally morally um, and of course that's enormously challenging enormously challenging and um, the man so I I mean I, I, I think I think you're right I mean I think in terms of what you said out there in question um, the army was a much much more macho place in 97 and I think that was particularly difficult for soldiers then when they were asked to be so restrained part of where in this aid to civil power mission where you know very quickly uh, certainly after 97 uh, women particularly from nationalist areas you know reviled and they became social lepers um, and of course the IRA were also you know th- on, on, there were many women who did sort of clandestinely or you know or perhaps more diff- in, uh, more dangerously openly uh, you know uh, marry or sorry uh, f- go out with soldiers or marry soldiers or and that did happen but the IRA were also waging this you know a, a, a very clear campaign to distance the population from the military and so women who did consort with soldiers were you know often punished in horrific ways and and I think that that experience for many soldiers left you know even soldiers who weren't personally affected, you know, in terms of the, they weren't going out with these women, but when they saw, you know, the tarring and feathering or the beatings that were, or the shootings that were handed out to, the, you know, that were meted out from uh, the IRA to women who fat who had associated with them, I think that led to a huge amount of bitterness um, in, in two levels. The first um, bitterness towards a pop, you know, a society that would allow that to happen. So why why is this permissible in Northern Ireland? And on a second level, um, it and, and there are reasons for that. I mean, clearly, you know, the 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 IRA were. You know, first and foremost, had you know uh, had to um, suppress dissent within their own community from their perspective, and they did that in a very brutal way. Okay, um, and uh, the there was the IRA's aim was to sort of make you know the more distance the soldiers were, the less empathy would the less potential for empathy there was between soldiers and the 
local community. And so this, 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 there was a campaign of, um, of, 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 of deliberate isolation or demonization of soldiers. And, and I think that was, to some extent, quite successful. That type of intimidation was very successful. Soldiers were increasingly treated like, uh, because of fear or because of dislike uh, by populations in, in nationalist areas um, who would have, you know, very little, if anything, to do with. And, and that social isolation led to bitterness in that course in your, you know, at a very uh, impressionable age, age 20, sort of, you know, <laughs> an age of extreme sense of, of um, masculinity and uh, virility, uh, to be isolated in such a fashion or laughed at in, in such a fashion uh, was was particularly galling for soldiers. And and did did they, you know, did that lead to uh, further demonization of population? I would say, yeah. So on the one hand, you know, initial sort of revulsion and sympathy uh, for the women who were targeted, but increasingly that, you know, that just didn't happen by sort of the late 1970s. It was much rarer for a, a woman, for example, from, you know, parts of Catholic West Belfast to uh, to to associate with a soldier or go out with a soldier. That became rarer. And if it did, it would have to be extremely clandestine um, and, you know, very furtive. And then the, the woman would have to clearly move. Um, but in the early days, it was so it was more common. And then obviously it sort of led to this this increasing isolation. Increasing isolation leads to a sense of, of, of that, you know, somehow soldiers feel, that, you know, that they're regarded as unclean or um, and, and that then sort of leads to a sort of uh, perverse kind of demonization as well towards the local population jacks them. So, so that was part of a, a, a toxic mix. In terms of racism, I think um, certainly for a number, it, it, I think that depends. I think a lo- you have to remember that a large, the, because of the, the prevalence of the Irish soldier within the British Army, um, uh, it was more difficult. I would I would, I would say that there was um, demonization certainly did happen uh, in terms of on, on the race issue. And, and that was absolutely, again, it was a way of kind of trying to separate them from us a bit uh, to some extent. Um, I, I, I don't think it was a colonial conflict in the sense that, you know, I don't think the, the Irish were just another sort of, this was not, Aden. This was not Kenya. This was not. Th- th- there was still a sort of um, a dialogue, you know, still a sense that this was different, um, and that's not only politically. That's also social, social history. So there certainly was um, anti-Irishness, and I think that was much more common than sectarianism, because again, so many British people are descended from Irish people that even if they regard themselves as English, you know, they're probably, you know, the reason they're Catholic maybe because their their granddad was an Irish Catholic, or you know. So so I think there was a there was a care. There was more care taken over sectarianism within the British Army than there was about, about racism. I think you know, even even people of Irish descent who served in, in Scottish regiments, you know, could have a go at the, the Irish occasionally, or at least the, the Irish they found themselves among in terms of, you know, because because the, because they had no question that they, you know they were they may be third generation, but they were Scottish. And so you know there was something wrong with that place and where they where they were operating. And and so I think I think the it certainly played a role. I think uh, the however I, again there's there's another caveat to that and that you know talking to a number of soldiers and, and even looking at memoirs, you know, there is also a respect for the capacity of the IRA, you know, that even though the IRA, I mean, there's a certain, there, there's a total disrespect and a hatred for the type of tactics that the IRA engage, you know, the, the terror, the type of terrorism we see, um, the, the, the harming of civilians. Um, there is a real disgust around, and there's a disgust around how the IRA engages, you know, how it's this shoot and scoot type, you shooting in the back type camp, uh, operation they see are the, are the luring of the, the killing of the um, three Royal Highland Fusiliers, you know, the young soldier who are sort of there's a honey trap lured up to outside in place at Belfast and killed in a you know, heinous way there's a real hatred of that and a real disgust for that but there is a you know a respect that these are that the IRA is a serious adversary for that, that you know and there, there is that, that is striking you know it's so again it goes back to this is not simply a volunteer army that is acting purely on its emotions you know guys who are sort of their function is violence and their fun- well, you know, professional violence can still sort of look on this the, the campaign or look at their adversary and, and still 
talk uh, with some degree of respect in terms of the how um, difficult this adversary is to break down. Not respect in terms of their moral or political aim, but respect in terms of that this is a tough. And so I find I do find that interesting in that you know what is you know clearly for particularly for young impressionable you know I suppose this is more common for NCOs to talk as way or officers, but but you know that after a few tours in Northern Ireland they begin to they know about the place they they know the tactics and um, even though that the IRA is is is, is affecting uh, casualties they can still have some occasionally a professional distance where they sort of stand back and go that was a pretty good come on or that was a pretty impressive uh, complex attack the IRA or that bomb was you know so so there's a, there is a professional fascination with tactics and there is some respect shown for the ability of the IRA to this 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 sort of the persistent ability of the IRA to come back at them um, even e- despite their their moral out the wider attack how did um, sort of wider army policy shape the behavior of subunit leaders and men I'm sort of thinking in terms of the autonomy they gave uh, brigades or sorry battalions to function uh, also sort of disciplinary policy and so how, how did that shape the way that the army conducted itself and men men actually trolled and 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 for, for, for want of a better word. Well, it's a fascinating question. I think you need to sort of look at, you know, to, to answer that question, you need to go back to looking at the regimental system itself and how now the army is, is in some ways quite quite factional, including in the infantry. So, you know, you get there to, to it is, it is among the officers, for example, you know, many of them would talk about, you know, that they would, they mightn't say the word itself, but say, oh, you know, that they had a, a type of patron, you know, somebody from the Green Jacket, somebody from the, you know, Highland Brigade who'd sort of made it to the senior brass and then sort of reached down and, and ensured that the professional career of capable people, nonetheless, but but capable people was sort of, that the doors were open uh, in an informal, you know, it's not just about everybody showing up to the promotion board or sort of you know and and having that there's no sort of um, informal way of ensuring that 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 promotion happened there, there was and and sort of the you know cap badge mattered and um some extent nationality mattered you know Scottish general would certainly make sure that he looked after Scottish budding you know Scottish major lieutenant colonels who showed promise and he was then trying to sort of elbow you know maybe uh, you know, a green jacket general out of the way so his his chosen candidate might, might advance and and you know there were probably some more junior regiments suffered as a consequence you know that there was sort of an elitism uh, you know a cap badge elitism that, that, that meant that perhaps other good performance was simply not acknowledged and promotion was not not, not um, encouraged Encouraged are are facilitated when it should have been, um, and that, I don't think that's gone away necessarily. Jeremy. But so so then when you, when you look at okay, so how does how does you know clearly brigadiers all types of cap badges rotate into Northern Ireland, whether it's you know thirty nine brigade in Belfast, three brigade around the border, um, and there's formal lines of authority. But to say that a brigadier, you know, as it, it, I mean, one of the cases I look at in the book, for example, is the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, and and things do go badly wrong for one company, the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. And, and they are led by a very combat-capable young officer. But there are questions over how the two murders happened. And, and, and you know, there are questions as to how did, yes, you know, a sergeant stabbed those individuals, but there were a preceding series of events before that that, you know, you might question, well, say, well, what role, if any, did command have in that? And we should look at that quite closely. Were those questions asked? No, they weren't, not at all. And and certainly the, the individual in question, you know, sort of, you know, very quickly sort of the promotion continued and, and, and and you know, for a brigadier to turn around, and it was clear that, that there are certain individuals who are destined for great things at a relatively young age, and are marked out by patrons within the army. You know, somebody who's a major general, for example, reaching down to his or her or his regiment and saying, uh, you know, here here is a guy I think is very good, and 
I think he should go here and he should go to, we should, you know, he should definitely go to uh, uh, on a ranger course in the United States and then he should definitely do this. And sort of, you know, doors open and you can see there are, there is an archival trace of that as well. You can see how certain individuals who may not be scoring excessively high marks in performance above another officer maybe, but are, are have been identified as as very good. And and, and, and so, the, the, you know, the, the for a brigadier to sometimes turn around and and say to a sort of a one of these selected and um, outstanding future general type candidates who are still perhaps you know only a lieutenant colonel a major rank and say right I'm actually going to push for that for court martial because I'm not happy I want this properly dealt with and I want to see or I'm going to I'm going to remove this person from command until questions are answered um I I I, I think there's a pattern of, of, of that being ducked consistently and so what you often get in in a low intensity aid to civil power type mission like banner you don't necessarily want guy who's seen as the most brilliant at outflanking the Russians in Northern Westphalia. You might need a more intelligence officer, politically astute type, you know, officer in command to who will who has the intellectual capacity to understand the need for restraint more than the need for front foot type aggressive operations, um, or at least being highly select about when to do more aggressive operations. And and obviously the an institution like the British Army, you know, you don't get medals for restraint and you tend to, you know, so the there are lots of incentives for more, sometimes more aggressive behaviour. And I would say that in nine, the early 1970s under Harry Tuzo's time as GOC, um, I would say that if you look, and I have looked at this, if you look at, you know, some of the guys who very were very well respected by the RUC, who thought that these were the guys when they came into an area, they left it less violent at the end of their tour. So certain regiments or even certain brigadiers that, you know, that they had, they'd taken the sting out of intercommunal violence out of out of, out of but by that they had they had actually really engaged in a heart, proper hearts and minds type campaign many of these guys you know who get the, the, the best sort of accolades from the local leaders like you know an RUC uh, chief inspector or superintendent don't actually advance um, so they've had a very good Northern Ireland campaign by local by the people who are best placed to judge their effort which is usually the RUC who are the guys who are going to get shot at always as opposed to the guys who get shot you know at four month intervals uh, sort of you know for four months and then every two years um, and so so some you know the RUC are consistently celebrating um, individuals who they they think lead to more intelligence uh, less grievance um, and less violence but is the army always celebrating these people in the same way and I would, I would I would say not and I would say that that some of the guys who get most celebrated are clearly the guys who are operating you know more kinetic uh, sort of say come away more in the bag as they might say in terms of um, inflicting casualties and and you know there is, there is a there is a balance here between clearly you know you want to engage in some attrition against your enemy an insurgent enemy or terrorist organization as they uh, uh, like like the provisional IRA but on the other hand you know who, who is the prize here uh, ultimately you know an IRA volunteer uh, who's who's who, an active IRA volunteer is sort of you know an end of a process of radicalization but they have you know committed themselves to violence long ago and are largely but what you have to do is prevent the next gen so which are the units that are acting astutely and you know with proper intelligence to ensure that there is less radicalization units um, and I would say that you know those units tend to be they're not written into the history of Operation Banner very well but when you dig deep enough you find them um, and, and you find the letters from the IUC and local counts and that, um, praising them for their very selective professional use of violence um, and, and so, the, so some of the guys who've been marked out for great careers in the British Army from elite more elite more I would say um, you know more elite more aggressive I would often say um, infantry unit um, sometimes a special forces background are not necessarily the guys, going to, the guys who are going to you know be 
are going to win you a low intensity AIDS of civil power conflict in the United States. How do you think the nature of soldier motivation on the ground actually affected the way that the army performed in the early 1970s? So in other words, did the way soldiers were motivated and the army sought to instill morale, i.e. the will to do the job, did that have a positive or negative effect on the on the um, ability of the formation to achieve its ultimate end? I think, so the first thing to say is that the, um, is, is that, you know, when soldiers arrived in Northern Ireland, they were, they were really revved up generally because, you know, having spent some, in the early 1970s, which, you know, the book is very, very much focused on the, uh, the most violent period of operation, you know, 73. And, and, and what we see, you know, there is that, you know, soldiers by their own account, written and, and oral, you know, are really revved up because certainly by 1972, late 72, they're expecting, you know, full scale, constant conflict. And um, as, as one soldier said, you know, I was expecting an IRA gunman under every bush. And, uh, and actually that could be, that's because the army in some ways you know, went back to its, what it's very good at, which is, you know, the training for the use of kinetic violence, kinetic force. So, um, you know, they, they learned quickly in terms of here's how the IRA will, here's how the, here's the commands, here's the types of um, ambushes you will face. Um, here, and here's how you have to respond. And this is going to happen and your mates are going to die, etc. And you're, this is, it's going to be violent. It's going to be very difficult. Many of you, uh, some of you may not come back. And so, you know, for 19 year olds or, you know, guys, very young, you're very young men, they were, you know, really, really quite revved up, you know, and, but also they'd spent so much time trying to, um, you know, concentrate on and how to respond to ambushes, how to bomb, bomb attack, etc. That, um, that, 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 you know, they were, they were expecting this on, on a more constant level than, than what took place. And of course, what often happens in, in Northern Ireland in low intensity conflicts is that, you know, lots of boredom, lots of time, or lots of repetitive kind of troll um, that which nothing happened. Um, and, and I think there was some, uh, you know, to some extent, the, the army is, you know, considering that the British army, we, we need to need to respect that Operation Banner is a is a very is a single operation and in the Cold War. Uh, and what is much more important to the British Army and to the British state is how the British Army will uh, perform uh, in Central Europe in the very likely coming next global conflict uh, w- w- when the Cold War turns hot. And so we're going. This is going to be a huge interstate conflict. And um, what we need then to inculcate lots of aggression, um, lots of a soldier that can sort of you know uh, think under extraordinarily violent conditions. Uh, and, and and this is the, and, and so and that is the primary interest and function of the British Army in the late 1960s and in the 1970s. Banner is still uh, you know still it's a big operation, but it pales in comparison to the British commitment to NATO and to the British Army in the Rhine. So the conditioning of soldiering um, is very much about um, you know trying to it's quite it's quite brutalistic. It's quite brutal. You know you you bring kids into uh, you know in, in, into so in the guards' case you know, into Purbright and you you sort of you you brutalize them a little bit. You sort of you make them into you sort of you you make them into much tougher individual, um, and then asking them to sort of so and so there's a very much a sort of primacy uh, on on aggression, controlled aggression, yes, professional aggression. You know, not to don't waste your energy. Do not you know the idea that nobody wants a frenzied soldier. This is all about cool but very lethal uh, group synchronized types acts of aggression, right? So control, but nonetheless, you need you know th- th- there is very much a kind of context around this, which is that that the you know within the infantry infantry particularly is that you need these guys to be able to take life at a moment's notice and therefore you need them to you need to encourage a spirit of aggression managed focused yet but ultimately if these guys get in a knife fight that they can come out of it okay now of course you know that's that's partly to do with you know in it in it and, and in the modern era of soldiering it's very unlikely that any you know any soldiers will many soldiers will ever get into a knife fight against an adversary right you know given the technology that's available but nonetheless this is sort of a hangover of of how you implicate a a soldier um how you make a soldier and 
that can lead to there's a logic around that which I won't get into right now but that can lead to problems when then you know you're asking a soldier to be a lot of the time a police or something similar to a police and to act with enormous restraint that we would expect only you know police officers with a lot of training uh, you know we, we, there's a reason why we have these separation functions why we have soldiers who are ready to take on the Russian British Army the Rhine as opposed to police officers who are willing to engage with the public in a myriad type of, of, of local social issues and, and asking an 18 year old to do that is is you know is almost un- is unquestionably unfair and extremely difficult and it, it places enormous challenges in officers that are very distinct from that of the British Army in the Rhine and uh, you know ha- does the army sort of shift its kind of reward and um, and training system sufficiently to meet those banner requirements no I wouldn't say I mean I, I, I think uh, certainly there is too much divergence among officers in terms of what they think is permissible you know so you get acts you know you get you get uh, you get officers who've written about you know kind of carrying out acts of collective punishments against against whole areas you know sort of um, deliberately going out to sort of you know, dig up gardens or um or sort of uh, you know turn off uh, or just sort of even harass the local population in case you know which is covered in the book i mean there are there's clear evidence for 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 company commanders who get it really wrong in terms of sort of uh, you know trying to engage in acts of collective punishment which are clearly not uh, either legal or um are conducive to the strategy and, um, and conduct of, of anybody in the british army so and, th- and that does happen so uh, are, are these guys you know do, have they had blemished careers to date these company commanders who sort of allow this to happen or even sometimes encourages no you know they tend to be in sort of the better regiment um so 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 does the army is the army you know very prepared for this type of highly political very sensitive uh very you know uh, type of operation no and and it, w- it is it is it is i think it would be wrong-headed and naive to think that it would be given that again that the army's primary objective was to engage with the soviet union um in northern westphalen or, or, in, or in germany or central europe um or, or and so it's also you know the, the colonial model of soldiering was quite different in that soldiers had uh, under colonial laws emergency laws and you know had, had a huge amount of such as in malaya or borneo you know could uh, you know have free fire zones and 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 basically sort of um you know, villagization, sort of forcibly move whole population, etc. You know, none of these tools were available to the British Army in Northern Ireland. Fun- fundamentally, different conflict. Um, so the army is not is not particularly ready for for this, and it would be surprising if it was. Um, however, that doesn't absolve command from not when you know, particularly the company level, things did go wrong, and and having a more open mind about that. You know, not all complaints from Irish men and women were fabricated, um, and, and 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 you know, and, and investigation wasn't up scratch as you know the world military police got clear that they weren't out to criminally prosecute um, soldiers uh, particularly from 1973 so you know even where they even were as the, as, as documents show even where they 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 knew that misconduct crime had, had taken place so so the army is uh, but let's let, let's balance that a little because you know this was enormously challenging for officers do did is there sufficient evidence to say that that largely um you know criminality was not common in the british army during this time i would say that that's correct you know in that the british army generally officership and ncos knew how counter- counterproductive criminal violence by soldiers would be towards keeping them safe right because you know do you want to uh there, there the officers and ncos knew that the ira was not the mainstream in northern ireland um whatever about the kind of the the slandering of certain popul- you know sort of general population or when it came to it um enough people and the the mainstream the the the, the i would say that the officer corps of the army and the ncos knew that the best way to to go after the IRA was by adhering to the law and to the uh, drills and professional functions of that they had learned and 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 and, and adhered to. and so the army held in that sense um, under great pressure and provocation I think um, and and one 
example of that is, for example, is is if you look at the there is a, uh, a very proficient uh, com- uh, platoon commander, uh, John Holmes in in the first battalion of Scots Guards. You know, talk to his soldiers about not that they should be restrained because they particularly like the area they were operating in, Turf Lodge, West Belfast, but because that's what professionals did. Because if they started it behaving in a gang like manner, even though they taken casualties and just going out attacking anybody who met the description of of their enemy, you know, a sort of eighteen year old kid and and, and who who may may have lived in a Republican area and you know simply just beating up an individual like that or, or causing him harm did nothing for uh, for them in terms of how they could really get even how they got even was through intelligence was by you know adhering to their training and um, was by you know using uh, uh, training procedures maneuvers intelligence watching that would mean that they would actually identify the, the individuals who were genuinely responsible causing death and and, uh, and 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 for wounding their their comrades and I think you know his that speech which like sort of relates in, in the in the book where he talks to his soldiers he talks down from you know really angry state 19 20 year olds really angry uh that, that some of their guys have been killed hurt in, this is in late 1971 uh, in turf lodge and, and and the way that he can sort of you know express that articulate that you know the rules are not just because you know we are inherently virtuous just for the sake of being virtuous you know we adhere to the rule of law because you know that is a powerful way of winning the conflict um because ultimately that's how you isolate you know that's how you isolate the uh an insurgent or terrorist group and and that's also um, that if you keep your professional standards and your procedures and your drills, that's what makes us better than them because we're professional and they're not. And once we start behaving like a gang, we will lose our command, we will lose our discipline, our control of violence, and it will become chaotic and ultimately end up not hurting the people we want to hurt. So I thought that was a really good way of sort of articulating not just as not it wasn't this is this is not a sort of case for liberal democracy. It's a case for getting even, but it's a case for getting even that soldiers understand. And that for me was is charismatic officership is understanding the need for for um, vengeance on the parts of human beings who are wearing uniform whose mates have been killed on the street in front of you know that they need they want to get even but it's about you know managing that 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 need that visceral need uh to to respond um by reminding them um, of their professional functions essential which will lead to not only them uh, not ending up in prison <laughs> but would also are you know uh, uh, but would also sort of allow them to function better in terms of military content and i think we need to reflect more on officership in such conditions we reflect a lot upon officership and you know the the ethical officer is not simply just you know ticking a box for because you know a government minister has requested that we teach ethics in military academies the ethical officer is you know ethics that that conduct is is a better way of you know lethal the management of lethal violence it's a better it leads to a better lethal outcome for soldiers and so there's nothing kind of wishy-washy about that it's just purely rash my penultimate question is what do you think your book tells us about the motivation of soldiers and what do you think his implications are? Um, so I don't think, I mean, first of all, I think we need to, uh, when it comes to, so we need to create a, we need to keep a distinction in our minds about when we look at the history, military history. First of all, in my view, it is, and Anthony King and other people have talked about this, but but it, it is important to look at, you know, what are volunteer armies and then what are professional armies, particularly a democratic society, because there is a, there is a pride in the professional army, often even amongst, you know, the lowest in the ranks about their, if you look at the infantry, about their professional function, their professional skill, that they are proud of that. And that is, so that is their, it is their craft. Now, 
if you're a conscript, uh, reluctant or otherwise, that's not necessarily given. But but it's it's you do have some people who are not proud of, of being soldiers and they simply want to get out of it, you know, quite quickly. But but by and large, it's quite common for this kind of sense that I am a professional and I am doing I have a craft, a skill, and and I've chosen this craft. I have apprenticed for it, I have you know received the, the qualification for it. And so I I think you know they also get paid, right? At the end of the day. And I think it's it's we should sometimes as much as we should celebrate you know, these remarkable people who put themselves in harm's way you know, on our behalf society. I think we also need to remember that you know th- these are craftsmen and women and, and they have a profession um, <clears throat> and they have their their motivations are not simply you know just flag and country and yes you know that's 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 certainly you know for many people obviously a part and you know doing service for your country or society or community is clearly a noble thing attracts people to it but but to say that you know that that certainly is is only one element and and I think we need to remember that so rather than thinking that you know so people who are attracted to the military have you know some desire for violence or are 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 um are, are somehow on the one hand you know sort of somehow you know inherently violent people are on the other hand that they are inherently more honorable than the rest of us i mean i think you get a diversity with the military it's it's like any other uh you know society or total institution um totally you know closed institution you get you get a diversity of motivations within it and and some people you know, socioeconomic some people patriotic some people because uh, they want to be they, they want to learn a craft um, and they want to get good at it and they and of course then there's the alluring you know adventurous uh, type of um you know the the, the the sense of the potential for adventure and for dangerous it's clearly for later adolescence is, is hugely attractive so I, I think first of all we need to we need to not generalize about you know motivations for joining okay so it's 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 disparate um and i think secondly in terms of uh the motivations of the soldiers very quickly comes from you know the idea that they are thinking in, in larger kind of um it, I, th- I think we should retain our capacity to think of the soldier as not simply some type of you know cold um, function of military force, but a you know a, a, a flesh and blood uh, emotional human being um, who is cap- capable you know the same individual as is the case in Northern Ireland. I mean, several times I came across this where you know somebody who engages in heroic action to save you know a civilian child um, can also sort of engage in an atrocity uh, shortly after days week. Um, so so we need to not we need to get away from sort of uh, you know common narratives which are eulogizing or sort of demon demonizing of, of soldiers and look upon them as, as 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 sort of functioning human beings with a unique function and uh, and then we need to look at in terms of their their motivations sort of how motivations might change so their reasons for joining the military which they give you know could be radically altered by their sense of professional function quite quickly i i i am very much of the opinion that um that when it comes there's there's lots of so so in, in terms of sort of garrison type society or behavior um, things that matter can often be, you know, a sense of, of regiment, pride, history, um, community, county, or you know, region, um, country. But when it comes to actually conflict itself, and when when these guys come under fire, um, suddenly the, that kind of social aspect can be can can sort of be diminished by the pressing need for task efficiency. So it's not that they're you know everyone's just a band of brother and, and they're all in it together. It's it's basically that you will soldiers will immediately very quickly gravitate towards the company in their group. Those who will keep them safe. Now, sometimes that is, uh, you know, perhaps an officer, second lieutenant, or you know, perhaps perhaps it's a, a sergeant, or you know, more commonly, it's the, the junior, it's a, you know, junior NCO, it's a lance corporal. Um, but perhaps it's not. Perhaps it's, it's, you know, perhaps and and what you'll see sometimes, and 
what happened in Operation Banner in the study that I did is that, you know, junior junior off, junior off, junior officers or junior NCOs who are not performing are quickly isolated by the group. You know, they're sort of, you know, and actually group dynamics take over around competence. You know, who is the guy who performs better under fire? And if, if he's going to keep us safe, we will listen to him. And he becomes the new informal reality constructor. Now, sometimes that can be dangerous and that person uh, may be good at getting you out of an ambush, uh, but may also want to hit back in a way that is antipathetic to the to the rules and laws of the of the institution and, and the jurisdiction. So it's it's and I think there it's 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 all about so we need to remember that you know I would come down in a conflict situation that you know task cohesion is much more important social um, and I agree with Anthony Anthony Tony King on this I and mean, I think that's right. I think you know very quickly soldiers will you know all this garrison type chat and, and sort of um you know worshiping of the colours whatever you know quickly will sort of come, come down to who is going to get me out of this situation um, or allow me to not only survive but prevail over the adversary um, and that's not always the guy with the stripes or the rank it, it can be quite different and so we need to remember that you know just because a soldier's motivation may be in the immediate sense kind of survival um, but that can that can alter things in terms of motivation and that can affect things in terms of rank and you can you can just continue to ignore that and say well you know that's not important but it is important if the person being ignored for example is the platoon command because it, go, it comes back to that I came out of this study you know really reflecting how important junior officership is um, and and having you know worked in a, in a military academy myself you know I'm um, it is it is this it is explaining the ethical use of force to soldiers the utility of F that is hugely important because you know we talk about strategic corporals there are so many strategic corporals are in the case of the Argyles in terms of you know stabbing to death the murder of two individuals in October 23rd 1972 a strategic sergeant you know the damage that that does to to the British Army is just enormous and and also you know killing the wrong guys um, as they did uh, because of you know what they believed to be sort of you know good intelligence turned out to be bad intelligence etc and um, sends a message of course that you know the the British Army is just lashing out at innocent people that cannot even sort of direct its violence cannot manage its violence in a legal moral sense as the agency of the state as the institution state is just basically another gang and if if so what what I am concerned about in the contemporary sense and which which I I, I took from this is that you know oddly enough you look at if you look at army journals from the 60s and 70s there was a lot more in the journals about the management of violence and the utility of F. so you would think that in an imperial society right, in the 1960s where with you know things like habeas corpus were not taken so seriously and you know kind of village you know you could forcibly remove whole population create free free fire zones etc that yeah, actually they wouldn't think about you know the ethical management of vi- violence as much but actually they, you know i think the british army then saw how things were shifting and they saw that the british public demanded a more ethical approach to uh, the use of violence um because the empire was ending um and there was there was a sense that you know also the second war had an effect you know in terms of civil military relations british society was not immune from looking on the continent and being a little bit kind of fearful of, of what a little bit sort of you know wanting to ensure that its military institutions were run according to ethical lines that they were a democratic you know this was a civil military democratic uh, you know this is an institution under democratic norm and so there was lots of you know really interesting journal art in, in army publications around this i worry today that actually you know i i i that, you know are we in sandhurst or cranwell or wherever it is are we really sort of you know teaching the utility of f i mean certainly my sense from that experience is that a lot of current officers you know felt that the cadets well, you know were doing this as a sort of tick box ex- you know just get out of them but actually you know in terms of a uk conflict against you know waged against some of our own people within this country in the united kingdom like you know this is really really important stuff and you know as we're finding out in recent days you know what the military ethical decisions you know in terms of you know, the national guard and dc whatever you know ethical decisions that officers make you know in terms of you know dealing with their own people or other or, or other countries people um the the management 
engagement with violence is the most is far harder than some of the you know rather formulaic kind of drill type maneuvers that they have to pass in Sandhurst out next. Um, they need to get this concept much more clearly, and I, I'm fearful that we're we are in the way that sort of a left a junior officer like Lieutenant John Holmes later SAS said um, the way that he could articulate that to his men. You know, is that taught properly? That that you know how to manage uh, emotion in this way? Because um, I certainly think that the potential for deviance, as we're seeing with you know Australian Special Forces, so on Afghan, that that this is this is a permanent challenge for officership. Ed, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for your time. Thank you.